0: There's a way, a way, such a better way.
1: Today, today, raise your voice, tell the world there's a better way. Today, there's a better
0: way. This is Rod Adams, and it's time for another Atomic Show. My guest today is Tyler Bernstein, the CEO of Xenopower. And when he starts talking, I'm going to ask him to tell us what Xenopower is. Hi, Tyler.
1: Hey, Rod. Thanks for having me today.
0: I've set you up. Now, tell us about Xenopower. What is what is Xenopower? What do you do, and what are your plans for the near future?
1: Absolutely. Well, Xeno is a company that a group of uh, students and a professor started at a Vanderbilt University back in 2018. Really focused on this issue of access to energy in off-grid regions, a region of growing importance from space to maritime to Arctic environments, and developing a technology, radioisotope power systems, to provide clean, reliable power in these domains. And radioisotope power systems are small-scale nuclear devices about the size of microwave ovens that convert the heat from decaying radioisotopes directly into electricity. Again, an isotope with a long half-life producing heat over decades Convert that to electricity, you have small boxes that generate electricity for decades at a time. And this is not a new technology. NASA has used to power systems for decades since the 1960s to power uh, long-endurance deep space missions, Voyager, Cassini, Mars rovers, along with the U.S. Uh, uh, Air Force and Space Force. Uh, the U.S. Uh, Navy and uh, Air Force used terrestrially to power remote sensors and naval buoys. And where we really started, Xeno was in these dual set of hypotheses that a, there's this growing need, again, for clean, reliable power in space on the ground under sea in these areas of growing importance, and B, that if we can commercially build a radioisotope power system that uses an available, abundant fuel product, but in a lightweight form factor, that that would open up broad usability in these environments. And at a very exciting point in the company now, with some terrific contracts under our belt, you know, announced recently contracts with the U.S. Space Force and NASA to really build and deliver our first operational systems as early as 2025 and begin scaling them for these broad opportunities for government and commercial customers uh, soon afterwards.
0: Are all radioisotopes a candidate for uh, radioisotope power supplies, or are there certain characteristics that make one, one type of uh, isotope or one type of radiation better than another?
1: Yeah, it's a really great question. And when we started early on at at Vanderbilt, this was really the first thing that we investigated was what is an isotope that we can use to build a scalable commercial product line? And there were multiple characteristics that we investigated. Some of the most notable ones being, as you mentioned, what are the shielding requirements of this isotope? Is it an alpha emitter, a beta emitter, a gamma emitter? Is it gonna require massive amounts of lead and concrete or can you have a more lightweight form factor? recognizing that especially in space, but also terrestrially for transportation purposes, a lightweight heat source and a lightweight power system has a lot of benefits. So certainly the shielding requirements is a massive factor in this. You also have the half-life of the isotope. If the isotope is a half-life of 30 hours, well, that is not quite as useful for a lot of these remote uh, applications as an isotope with half-lives that's decades or hundreds of years. Another characteristic that is very related to that is the specific power of the isotope. Is this an isotope that's very high specific power or lower specific power, which of course is related to the half life of the isotope. And there's a lot of applications where you want a really high specific power isotope. And beyond that, and one that we really focused on early on was the availability of the isotope. Is this an isotope that is extremely rare? Does it require to be produced in specialized reactors and multiple sites in the US and internationally? Or is this an isotope that is abundant. Perhaps it's a waste product. Perhaps it's a liability to the Department of Energy and the nuclear industry. And when you balance out all these characteristics, the isotope that we identified as our near term, and initial isotope that we are pursuing is strontium-90, and largely because of that last trait, the fact that strontium-90 is an abundant, really, waste product from the nuclear fuel cycle. And early on, you know, we were really focused on ensuring that we can build a product that can scale not build a product that can be built once or twice or three times a decade. And the abundance of strontium-90 really was the reason why we began pursuing that in the early days. You mentioned the characteristic of
0: isotopes that are not necessarily favorable and not what you're interested in doing for you. It sounded to me like you're describing plutonium-238, which has been used for a number of NASA missions, but not a lot of NASA missions, because it is extremely expensive. Has great characteristics, pretty good uh, specific power, and almost no uh, gamma radiation at all coming from it. With an 87-year half-life, it's really sweet. But I think a, a kilogram of plutonium 238 is in the millions of dollars. Is that correct? So,
1: so, plutonium 238 is an unbelievable isotope, and there's a reason why it has been used for you know every single NASA deep space mission, and has unlocked some of the greatest mysteries in space exploration of Pluto, the Voyager missions that explored all of the outer planets, Mars, rovers. I mean, it is an incredible isotope that builds incredible radioisotope power systems. But to your point, it is an isotope that has to be produced in certain reactors and is uh, you know, it, it is not at scale today in the way that other isotopes are. And while there certainly is enough plutonium to meet these marquee NASA missions, including the missions upcoming, such as Uranus probes, and of course, the exciting mission to Titan, where we're going to, the Dragonfly mission, we're going to fly a quadcopter through the Titan atmosphere, Um, you know, where we saw at Xeno was that there is starting to be in the coming decade, a far greater growth of operations, especially in space, but also maritime and Arctic environments. When you look at the Artemis program, you look in the past couple weeks that you've had India and Russia and Japan later this year, US landers go to the lunar surface, all of these systems that could use radioisotope power systems to Operate again in these off grid, dark shadowed regions. We saw this opportunity to build a radioisotope power system that is complementary to these plutonium systems, where the plutonium can be reserved for these marquee multi billion dollar missions, and that we can build a commercially available system that might be a little heavier, might have a shorter half life, but will still have a lot of usability as we start to see the growth of operations in these regions where radioisotope power systems can be used.
0: Tell me a little about Tyler Bernstein. Where do you come from? What did you do before you started Xeno? Give us give us a scoop.
1: Yeah, so I, I grew up in uh, in St. Louis, Missouri. And when I was eight years old, my life's plan was to go to Duke, uh, then go to Washington University in St. Louis for medical school, and eventually become the St. Louis Blues orthopedic surgeon. I was a, a huge hockey fan. Hockey was a huge when I was growing up. And I think I recognized from an early age that I was not going to make it to the NHL. Uh, and I was fascinated by medicine from an early age. So I thought that that was a, you know, a nice way to merge those interests. Um, and, you know, it really was my plan. Through all of high school, I shadowed a bunch of doctors. And my senior year in high school, I ended up taking a computer science class and pretty immediately fell in love with this idea of building. And, you know, with just me and a computer that I could build a product that at a minimum was interesting and neat and at a maximum could really help people solve problems. Uh, this was also at a time when I had a lot of doctors telling me not to pursue medicine. And as a combination of these two, I ended up going to Vanderbilt University uh, as a computer science major. And at this point, in my freshman year really caught the computer science bug and thought I was gonna go work at you know Google, Amazon, Facebook, you name it. And freshman year started building a couple apps, you know, again, trying to see what I could do with just me and a computer, and ended up building an app that was for high school carpooling where it would match a rider and a driver with similar routes to school to help them carpool I also built a, you know a fundraising application for nonprofits in the Nashville area, again, just really you know in this bug of, of building things and at the beginning of my sophomore year after interning at a, uh, at a company in St. Louis as a software engineer, I was talking to a close friend of mine, Jonathan Siegel, and we were having the classic, uh, you know, early school year discussion on our internships. Uh, I was talking about my time as a software engineer. He was talking about his time at United Airlines. And we really talked about how we noticed at United, this reliance of the aviation industry on oil. And a week later, the two of us got together, said, how else could you power an airplane with a clean energy source? And we said, what about nuclear? And, you know, that was the original foray into nuclear energy um, that, you know, has led to us, you know, nearly five years later with uh, with Zeno. So, you know, I will say this is not the path that I thought that my life would be going down. I don't think this is the path that any of my family members did as well, but, uh, you know, it's been a pretty incredible one.
0: When you talk about your enjoyment of creating things, did you ever join the maker movement?
1: Did I ever join the maker movement? You know, where we really started at the early days at Vanderbilt was at a innovation center called the Wondry um, on, on Vanderbilt's campus. And this was, you know, focused partly on helping students with ideas, incubating this ideas and can chat more about, you know, they were, they were kind of the folks that really got us the first sorts of funding to begin pursuit of what is now Xeno. Um, you know, did have a maker space there and I took a couple classes in there, but, you know, honestly, until Xeno, most of my, making was you know on computers with software so you know not not as much of the maker space using 3d printers using wax uh you know all, all of that all of that great stuff okay so most of your your making things you're creating stuff is electronic
0: virtual not good to physical devices so obviously xeno is a little different from that so tell me how you went from computers to to actual devices
1: Yes, you know, it was a, uh, qu- quite a bit different. Um, and, you know, again, to maybe kind of continue, the, the story was was briefly going down before, you know, it really started with uh, you know, my friend Jonathan and I in this pursuit of a nuclear-powered airplane, seeing, you know, if we could put a nuclear reactor on a Boeing 777, that it could be a clean energy source that could help, you know, the decarbonization of the industry. Now, this, of course, is a uh, challenging idea, let's say, for, for many, many reasons. But we ended up getting in touch with a professor at Vanderbilt, uh, Professor Steve Cron. And Steve had, you know, shared with us in the 1950s, the U.S. government spent over a billion dollars trying to build a nuclear-powered airplane to combat the Soviet Union. And, you know, Steve said it's been, you know, 60, 70 years. Why don't you all dig into this a little more? So Jonathan and I ended up writing a 20, 25-page paper on this nuclear-powered Boeing 777. We were, for some reason, pursuing a thorium molten salt reactor. I am not quite sure why. We just went down that rabbit hole. And, uh, you know, in pursuit of this idea, we ended up getting in touch with a graduate student at Vanderbilt, Jake Matthews. And Jake was a West Point grad who was getting his master's in mechanical engineering at Vanderbilt. And as a part of his master's program, he had written a paper on using a radioisotope power system to power an unmanned aerial vehicle, originally in the Martian atmosphere. So if you could put a radioisotope power system on this drone, you could have a drone that could stay in the Martian atmosphere for years at a time. Which, again, is actually now what... uh, um, is now what what NASA is doing on on Titan's atmosphere later this decade, um, so you know the three of us get together: Jake, Jonathan, and me, and this professor Steve. So actually, four of us, and this was really what led us delving into radioisotope power systems, um, and you know, kind of the the core foundation of the original Zeno team. So again, a a very weird roundabout story of you know how we got from originally wanting to be a doctor to pursuing you know computer science and building apps to you know, a group of students and a professor saying, we're going to build a radioisotope power system company.
0: When did Xeno actually get formed? When did you
1: incorporate? April 2018. Um, so, you know, it was late 2017 when we started to get together with the four of us and we were kind of, you know, dabbling, you know, part time in early, early 2018. Um, we ended up getting, uh, you know, through the, the one this Vanderbilt uh, Innovation Center, we ended up getting a fifty thousand dollar grant from the National Science Foundation through what's called the I-Corps program, and the purpose of this program was funding not to actually do technology development, but customer discovery. Uh, recognizing that you know nearly seventy percent of all startups fail because they build something that nobody wants, and that's a very simplistic idea. It seems obvious, but again, seventy percent of companies fail because they're building an interesting science project. You know, not, not a real uh, technology that is solving problems. And the purpose of this program was. Over, you know, about two to three months, interview hundreds of people in this industry, from customers to regulators to stakeholders, to get a sense of the viability of this company before investing time and capital to do so. So, you know, we received that $50,000 in the summer of 2018. And, uh, you know, we incorporated in April 2018, right before that. Who are your target customers? You obviously did some research. Who who interests? Who wants
0: a radio power supply?
1: You know at the high level and i'll kind of dig in a little more and you know kind of mentioned this early at the beginning um you know it is really people operating in these off-grid regions regions where power is extremely challenging and that ranges from the surface of the moon to satellites in certain orbits to the arctic to undersea in the seabed again these places where there are not grids and it's very difficult to get power with current energy sources and and frequently potential customers in these environments simply cannot do what they want to do because they don't have access to energy. So this ranges, of course, from the government, from NASA to the Space Force, to the Army, to the Navy, and the commercial sector, companies developing lunar landers and autonomous undersea vehicles, again, with a power system the size of a microwave oven that generates electricity for decades. We can enable these customers to operate as they would like to, in these austere regions and regions of growing importance with growing activity in the coming decades
0: how big is you know now are you are you hiring people
1: we are we are uh, about 30 35 with full time contractors today split between dc and seattle dc being most of our business policy regulatory team and seattle being most of our engineering team and uh you know hiring quickly um you know again announced Within the past couple months, a $15 million contract from NASA to uh, work with intuitive machines and Blue Origin and other great companies to enable long-endurance, long-lived assets on the surface of the moon, landers, and rovers to operate during the lunar night and operate in permanently shadowed regions. We announced a $30 million program with the Space Force to build a small satellite powered by our power system with electric propulsion to enable a highly maneuverable satellite. And, you know, as we embark on these, these projects and these contracts, uh, you know, we certainly need to continue to grow the team to execute against these. So hiring uh, quite a bit. Um, you know, if you go on our website, xenopower.com and click on the careers, you'll see a lot of the roles that we're hiring for and, you know, adding more on a weekly basis. Um, sorry, was was there a second part to the question or was that the, uh, we we're asking about are we hiring?
0: No, you, you've answered both. You answered how big are you and how, and are you hiring? And I presume that your, your website tells people what kind of people you're hiring. And I know for a fact that it's not all uh, technical nuclear engineers. You've got to have some other folks on your team, right?
1: That's right. You know, I think that is one of the very intentional things that we have done from an early day, Rod, is, you know, not, you know, we need unbelievable engineers and recognize that, you know, we, we have a lot of difficult engineering to be done. But in order to build a, a nuclear energy company and, you know, not just build designs on paper and not just build hardware that's going to sit in the lab but really build the technology that can scale and that we can serve customers in multiple markets. We need great engineers. We need a strong regulatory team. We need a strong supply chain team to get access to fuel and facilities. We need a strong policy team, a strong business development team, a strong operations team, a strong people and culture team to ensure that we have a strong, cohesive culture and that people love working at Xeno. So I think we've been very diligent from the early days to ensure that we're uh, attracting strong talent and hiring amazing team members in each of these areas. And absolutely, if you go look at the roles that we're hiring for, it's a, a wide range of roles. And we also have a general application. Um, you know, we're interested more than anything else in bringing unbelievably talented, passionate, ambitious, uh, intellectually honest people into our organization. And, you know, we're very open to finding roles for people, um, you know, if if they're the right fit for the company with what we need right now.
0: Do your systems use just the thermal uh, generation that's typical for the NASA systems where the, the thermal energy gets directly converted to electricity with semiconductors, or do you have other conversion processes?
1: Yeah. So there are really three product lines that we are developing and, you know, really kind of three broad categories of radioisotope power systems. And these are radioisotope heater units, radioisotope thermoelectric generators, and radioisotope sterling generators. The most well-known radioisotope technology was that second one, RTGs and radioisotope thermoelectric generators. And these are devices, as you mentioned, that use electric generators that use the Seebeck effect with the difference in temperature of the interior of the heat source and the ambient environment wherever it is operating to get a flow of electrons and produce electricity. And you know RTGs is what has been used for all of NASA's deep space missions, Voyager Cassini Mars Rovers. Um, however, There are other useful radioisotope products and ones that have been used before. So radioisotope heater units are really just taking that heat source and saying there is value in this heat. We don't just need electricity for everything. Uh, Heat can be very useful in radioisotope heater units, frequently called ROOs, have been used on many deep space NASA missions as well to keep electronics and other components warm in the very frigid environments. And, you know, for example, let's look at where we're looking to use potentially Ruse and where we're looking to deploy Ruse. You know, when you're on the surface of the moon, you are generally in lightness for 14 days, and then you're in darkness for 14 days. During that 14-day darkness called the lunar night, um, if you don't have a heat source, uh, you're going to freeze to death. And you look at recently, again, the uh, Indian lander uh, that landed on the moon, you know, a couple weeks ago, um, recently hit the lunar night. They're hoping that it's going to be able to wake up uh, when it hits the next lunar day and lightness comes back, but it might freeze to death. And for example, with a RU, just this heat source on this, you may not be able to have electricity during the lunar night. So this rover or lander might not be able to actively operate, but you can stay warm, you can go to sleep, and you can wake back up the next day. So you have RUs that can just provide heat, that can have extreme value in space and other environments. You have RTGs, this traditional... Radioisotope power system that does provide electricity using thermoelectric generators that has been deployed on all of NASA's technologies. And the third flavor, one that we're now funded to develop with our new NASA contract, is a radioisotope Stirling generator using a Stirling engine to convert this heat into electricity. Now, Stirling engines have moving pieces, which does add some additional risk. It does add some additional complexities in the system itself. But because of these moving pieces, because of the dynamic system that it is, you can get much higher efficiencies of thermal energy into electric energy. So with thermoelectrics, you might be getting five, six percent of that thermal energy converted into electrical energy. With a Stirling engine, you can get upwards of 20, 25, even 30 percent efficiency of that thermal energy into electrical energy. With that, you can have a system that is generating more electricity per mass of the unit itself, um, which can have a lot of benefits in a variety of environments. So, you know, we are pursuing all three of these and different programs and contracts that we have and see different, uh, you know, different value propositions that each of these different products have.
0: Even though you're using uh, waste and putting it to beneficial use, at the time that your systems finish their useful life, there's still going to be some leftovers. What's your plan to uh, take care of the leftovers from your devices?
1: Yep, absolutely. So strontium ninety is a half life of twenty eight point eight years, and of course the rule of thumb is that roughly after ten half lives, there is you know, no nuclear material that is left. Um, and of course that you know is, is not exactly correct, but you know a good rule of thumb. So after roughly three hundred years, strontium decays into stable zirconium. You'll have only zirconium metal left. Um, three hundred years sounds very long, but as you know most in the nuclear industry know, that's actually a relatively short time period. For nuclear systems itself, so at the end of life, it really depends on where it is deployed, and I'll you know speak to precedent radio, you know the precedent set by legacy radioisotope power systems. You have systems that were used in the Apollo missions that are still sitting on the moon today. You of course have systems in Voyager that are in interstellar space. You have systems on Mars that are remaining there. Terrestrially, the Navy has deployed radioisotope power systems on the seabed, and there has been joint concurrence that. The seabed is the end of life for those systems itself, because in each of these environments, whether it's the surface of the moon or it is on the seabed, the containment of these systems, we can be confident the containment will remain past 10 half half-lives of the isotope itself. So these systems will be able to remain in situ uh, for its end of life. Um, However, there are certain environments where we may want to take these systems back, crack them open, and reuse the very usable fuel, given that there will still be massive potential energy uh, at the end of the life of these systems. You know, we're targeting five to 10-year life cycles. After that, again, still have e 90% of the potential energy of the isotope in that system itself. So I guess, you know, the, the short answer to your question, Rod, is it depends on the environment, but either the end of life at where it was deployed, if it can be safely determined that that is its place of disposition, or it will be brought back and reprocessed to continue to use that fuel for future systems.
0: We mentioned or you mentioned that strontium-90 is a widely produced isotope, it's created pretty close to the peak of the yield curve for uh, fission products when you split apart uranium in a nuclear reactor. But how do you get the strontium out? There's not much reprocessing going on worldwide. Is there an inventory of strontium available?
1: Yeah, so there are large uh, stocks of separated strontium-90, both in the U.S. and internationally. You know, this has been an effort from our very early days working with industry, with the Department of Energy, with international partners to develop this robust strontium-90 supply chain using material that is already separated. To your point that there is not a lot of active separation of isotopes from used nuclear fuel today. Um, So, you know, it's been a a, a massive part of our, our effort. Again, you know, Hirsch Desai and our team, our chief commercialization officer has been leading that and has done an absolutely exceptional job. And, you know, there's a lot of excitement both in government and industry of this idea of taking what right now is sitting in storage in casks in pools, a liability and reusing that as a power source to support space exploration, national security missions, support use of clean energy in these off grid austere environments. Um, So, again, you know, that is really the effort right now is using this already separated material um, to to, to build our initial systems.
0: Once that inventory of material starts getting short or maybe the prices start going up, is this going to help it become more viable to recycle
1: use nuclear fuel? So there, there, there is a lot separated. Um, so a lot to keep us going at scale for quite some time. But to your point, it, it right now is a limited amount that a finite amount that is separated. And you know that is one of the broader uh, questions here. Rod is you know there's of course a lot of questions going on right now about whatever word you want to use, recycling, reprocessing. And you have great programs at ARPA-E such as the Curie and Onwards program starting to look at this. You have companies such as Oaklow that are starting to investigate more of what, what recycling or processing could look like. Um, and yeah, one of the questions here is if we can show an economic case for material that right now is considered waste, if that can help push us over the edge to help uh, you know make the case for recycling and reprocessing. So, you know, no, I, I don't think I can sit here and say that, oh, the Strontium 90 market is going to be the single factor that makes it now viable to reprocess or recycle. But it could be a factor. And it's not just Strontium 90. There's other isotopes and use nuclear fuel for industrial, for medical, for power purposes. And if we can help look and build this radioisotope market across the board of this material that right now is in this waste, again, potentially that could be a part of the equation and a part of the calculation to say that we should make that step toward recycling and reprocessing and not just for policy purposes, but truly for economic purposes. I think I read a press release somewhere
0: that indicated that The isotope americium-241, which is commonly used in smoke detectors, might be something of use in radioisotope power. I'm not sure if that came from you or from somebody else. What do you know about americium-241?
1: Yeah, so that brings it towards a great point here, which, you know, I mentioned early on, um, you know, we did a broad isotope study uh, looking at you know, what isotope we want to in, uh, pursue uh, initially and in the near term for these products, with the biggest factor being what is an isotope that is available and exists that we can build a product at scale from. But beyond that, there's a series of other isotopes that are very interesting, one of them being americium 241 Americium 241 being alpha emitter, and americium 241 having a very long half-life, over 400 years. And as a part of this recent contract that we have from NASA, uh, we are funded to investigate americium 241 and look at the viability of the supply chain of the isotope itself to build extremely long-lived and more lightweight systems for use on the lunar surface and in deep space applications. So we're really excited about that. Um, You know, this contract is just getting kicked off. Um, You know, there's some great folks in in Europe at the University of Leicester and the European Space Agency that have been developing americium 241 radioisotope power systems as well. Um, and, you know, beyond just Americium 241, Rod, you know, when, when you talk about the availability of strontium and, you know, where are we can go after that, there are a wide set of isotopes that are in our product roadmap and where we can have in the future this product line of different radioisotope power systems with different isotopes that have different characteristics that open up and support different market segments.
0: I'm thinking there are, we mentioned the importance of long half-life for some of your missions, but... I can envision a few places where a high power density, intense radioactive source that may
1: only have, say, a few weeks half-life could be extremely useful as well. Exactly right. You know, a a lot of these different isotopes have different interesting characteristics for different market segments. And a lot of the strategy here is what is the right isotope to invest in uh, for the development of that product line and that supply chain at what time? Um, And again, that's a lot of the great work that Hirsch has been doing from the supply chain standpoint, that Lindsay, our VP of engineering, has been working on, that Jake Matthews, our CTO, has been working on. Um, Again, this balance of staying focused on the work that we have now and executing and delivering on these contracts, but also being prepared to diversify into these other product lines in the future once we have the bandwidth and the capability to do so. So
0: does your company have some sort of philosophy like Google used to have where they had the f- severe focus on what they had to do today, but they also let their engineers kind of dream or think for yep. a certain period of time, every part of their week or, or month, whatever is it. You got something like that going,
1: you know, I, I, th- that, that is the balance that we were trying to draw here. And, um, you know, it's funny f- Facebook coined a phrase, uh, you know, move fast and break things. And, you know, that was kind of... You really <laughs> can't do that in nuclear. You can't do that in nuclear in the slightest. And, you know, what we, what we like to say is, you know, we want to move fast and bend things. You know, we, we want to push the limit a little bit of what is possible technologically, how quickly can we move, but recognize that you absolutely cannot break things in this industry. And I think that's a lot of this balance here as well as balancing moving quickly, but very diligently and most importantly, safely on these contracts that we have. But yes, as you said, still giving time for folks on our team to dream and explore and think about what this technology can be in the future, where we can be making investments to ensure that we are always innovating and that we're not staying stagnant. So, you know, I think that that really is a lot of the ethos and thesis of our culture that we've been working to develop. Um, And I think a lot of the ethos and culture that people on our team will share is this balance of being hyper-focused on the work that we have, moving quickly, but recognizing that we can only bend things in this industry, Um, we cannot even take the risks that folks in the aerospace industry can. You know, of course, there's, you look at almost all of these, you know, let's go to launch, launch companies that their first rocket blows up, and that is expected. That, of course, cannot happen in this industry. Um, So, you know, it's moving quickly, staying focused, but, you know, recognizing that we have to operate diligently and safely and within, of course, regulatory bounds that we are in, but still giving that Uh, intellectual freedom uh, to dream and think about what we can do in the future.
0: I guess I'll pull your analogy just a little bit further. In nuclear, you you can bend, but you certainly don't want to approach the point of plastic deformation where you (laughs) spring back into your original form, right?
1: Well said. Exactly. Exactly. Good. uh, Good. 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 End of the analogy there.
0: Have you guys uh, hit certain milestones? Have you actually produced a, a model that you are working model that you can show your customers tell me a little bit
1: about what you've actually built yeah so we'll have some very exciting news for this in the next uh, six weeks um hopefully can chat again afterwards but i will say that from the earliest of days uh we have had a focus on building hardware and we've had a focus on building nuclear hardware as quickly as we can uh, recognizing that models are great but models don't give you and don't give customers and don't give the public uh, the credibility that actually having a a nuclear-fueled system does. Um, So, you know, that has been a a hyper-focus from our earliest of days is ensuring that we have actual data to back up our models and moving as quickly as we can to actually build nuclear hardware. But, you know, in addition to just the development of our technology and of our, our power systems, as mentioned early on, we've had just as much focus early on in the development of the supply chain access to fuel and facilities to not just build these one-off, but build these at scale. We've had a hyper-focus on our regulatory environment and ensuring our engagements with state regulators, with the NRC, with the FAA, with our government stakeholders from the Navy to the Space Force. Um, We've been engaged with those folks early on. And, you know, very excitingly, earlier this year, we had our payload review application with the FAA for space systems approved, uh, which means that they have now started this review targeting an early 2025 approval of our launch is still a lot of massive work to be done in that environment. Um, So, you know, I think I mentioned this to you, you know, when we're working to set this up on multiple of those fronts, we'll have some really exciting announcements over the next six weeks. Um, Really a massive six weeks for our company, a super exciting six weeks from engineering and supply chain efforts specifically. Um, So we'll be able to share more specific details in the future. Um, But, you know, again, from the earliest of days, uh, we've been intent on building hardware, um, and on getting to a nuclear prototype as quick as we can.
0: I can't wait to hear more. And I understand the the need to keep things a little quiet until you actually are ready to release. Well, so let's finish this up with. Oh, go ahead.
1: Oh no, we we we'll, we'll love to share. It's uh, it's hard to hold it back, but you know certain contractual terms and you know NDAs and all all that good stuff need to wait till things are uh, you know all buttoned up to share the news. But you know we're really looking forward to sharing it soon.
0: Good. Well, let's bring it home with uh, a little conclusion, or at least what I want to conclude with, is what's your view of the importance and unique qualities of getting energy from atomic nuclei rather than from the electron cloud that surrounds the nucleus?
1: You know, I think that the three characteristics that really, and I'm going to you know, try to narrow it in specifically on radio power systems here, um, and I think this really does go beyond it but is of course the fact this is a clean energy source. Second, that this is a high density energy source. And the third, this can be a long lived energy source that does not need any outside refueling or uh, any input to continue to produce the energy. Resulting in for us, a box that is a clean energy source with a high power density that generates electricity for years at a time without any human interaction and i think you can expand that to a lot of reactors as well especially micro reactors that are uh, hoping to have those similar traits and you know why that is important um, you know people talk a lot about this amazing time that we're in in the nuclear industry you know perhaps you could argue the greatest innovative ecosystem especially in the commercial sector ever for this industry um, you know people like to stay away from the you know the term renaissance for obvious reasons but you know it, it is an unbelievably exciting time and I think one of the factors, again, like recognizing that I am newer to the industry, you know, only about four years into it, but from what I've heard from previous, uh, pre- previous decades, you know, one of the differences today is the multiple sources of tailwinds for this industry that are enabled by those three characteristics. You know, first, you of course have uh, the clean energy transition and the decarbonization efforts. And really in DC, you know, I'm based in DC, what is now bipartisan support and acceptance of nuclear energy. And this recognition that nuclear has to be a role in our fight against climate change, and that it has to be a role in our decarbonization efforts. And that is a massive tailwind because of the clean energy nature of this power source. Second, you have this renewed emphasis on energy security. You know, you look, of course, what is happening in Europe in the war of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You look at what has happened in Germany, a nation that shut down their nuclear energy plants and is now importing natural gas from Russia. And you see a renewed emphasis in the U.S. and internationally on energy security and onshore and domestic supply chains. And nuclear can have a critical role in that. You also look at the resilience emphasis of, of nuclear energy, and you look at the Department of Defense, you know, very excitingly, you know, last week or this week, you know, choosing Oak power uh, to power Eilson Air Force Base up in, uh, up in Alaska. So again, this combination of the resilience of nuclear energy and this renewed emphasis on energy security, there's a massive tailwind for nuclear because of those characteristics and third you're starting to see a growing use and interest in nuclear in more application-based environments and i say that, that these are not areas that are buying nuclear because of the dollar per kilowatt hour they're buying nuclear because of the new applications that are enabled in space environments from nuclear thermal propulsion to nuclear power on the surface of the moon and maritime environments looking at undersea power nodes to looking at the the shipping industry that can be using nuclear to enable new applications there. And again, because of these multiple sources of tailwinds from the clean energy transition to energy security and onshoring domestic energy supply chains to application-based uses of nuclear energy, I think that the characteristics of being a clean energy source with high power density in a long-lived energy source is enabling all of those that is giving uh, again, multiple sources of tailwinds to this industry uh, that hopefully will help push it forward as we really start to, you know, in the 2020s, demonstrate these technologies from radioisotope power systems, the microreactors, the SMRs, to fusion reactors, and hopefully scale on all of these fronts into the 2030s and beyond.
0: Well, thank you. That, that was a great summary. I have to admit that I don't shy away from using the term renaissance at all. I remind people that if you look back in history, and try to ask historians when the renaissance began they'll give you dates that vary over about a 50 year time frame. Mm-hmm. in other words it took a long time to move from the dark ages and to get a sustainable renaissance that everybody agreed was happening so we're only uh, say 10 or 15 years into what we call the renaissance so we have a long way to go we had a long dark ages long period of time when we weren't building anything new and all of the technology was being developed was locked up in laboratories just waiting to be released so there's this huge bit of creativity from people like you that's just ready to be hitting the market at a time when we need it the most so todd i want to thank you for joining me i think uh what you shared is very exciting people most technologists love space various reasons so what you're doing is exciting there i'm also excited about what you can what you're going to be bringing to the terrestrial world and uh anyway just I, i'm impressed thanks for visiting
1: thank you rod really appreciate it and, you know, I, I love what you said there on the you know renaissances take time and, you know i think that uh it's very easy to get caught up in in short-term thinking Thinking about just a couple years down the road, even looking at a decade, at a long time. But you know, I think in this industry, what we're trying to do is ensure that by twenty one hundred, by beyond, um, that, that this world and you know, other worlds, perhaps we're visiting or inhabiting, um, you know, have reliable energy sources. And uh, you know that that takes time. So I think that's a, a really a really great point, an important mindset to shift towards long term thinking, which you know impacts day-to-day, the day to day decisions that you make. So. I, uh, again, think that's a great point, but really enjoyed the discussion. Thanks uh, thanks a lot for having me here. I'm going to
0: bring one more thing back in, reminder for what you first started telling us about when you were a teenager and thinking about your life plan and planning to become a doctor. You know, people complain about nuclear because it may take 10 or 15 years from the time you think about it until the time you've got a reactor deployed. But if a doctor, if a kid wants to be a doctor, they better be thinking about fifteen years ahead of time, right?
1: That's exactly right. I have uh, you know lots of friends in mind that are just finishing up med school, going to the residencies, and you know they still have quite a bit of time until they're uh, you know living the doctor life they'd like to be. So no, it's you know I think on a lot of these fronts, you know, great great things take time, and uh, you know that is okay. That that's the case. That it, that's the way that it should be. Um, but you know you need to have patience, and you need to have the grit to uh, you know grind through the 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 lows that come across that way. Um, that's uh, that's correct.
0: Yeah. And when it comes to clean energy, we're not going to stop needing clean energy in 2050, as some people seem to think that there's some sort of magic precipice that will happen there, that year. Uh, we're going to still need clean energy in 2,100 and 2,500 and 3,000. So Absolutely. Thank you very much for your time. Talk to you soon. Thank and you. Talk to you soon with updates on your, your cool announcements.
1: Yes, absolutely. Looking forward to it. All right. Bye, Tyler. Bye, Rod. Thanks.
0: This episode of The Atomic Show is brought to you by Nucleation Capital. We're a venture capital fund focused on selecting ventures with extraordinary promise. They're building the advanced nuclear sector and helping expand our clean energy options. We're building a portfolio of ventures on behalf of investors like many of you. We don't just take funds from the large institutions that typically allocate to venture capital. We believe that regular investors should have access to the opportunities in modern nuclear for their own portfolios. We allow people to subscribe on a quarterly basis, starting as low as $5,000 per quarter. A four-quarter subscription will get you exposure to between four and six ventures. If you are an accredited investor, and would like to learn more about how you can participate, please check out our website at nucleationcapital.com. That's nucleationcapital, all one word, dot com. Our fund and all of the information you need to subscribe is available online. You can also subscribe to our newsletter, Nucleation Insights, and join our pro-nuclear investor network to learn about select syndicated investment opportunities. If you have questions, we're happy to chat. Please spread the word. There's a way, a way, such a better way.
1: Today, today. Raise your voice, tell the world there's a better way. Today, there's a better
0: way. Ooh, there's a way, such a better way. Today, today. Now, raise your voice, tell the world there's a better way. The way is the Adam's way